0: Hi, everybody, this is Pete Worrell, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. Bigelow LLC's website is bigelowllc.com, where we freely share immediately useful information with high-performing entrepreneur-owner managers who want to build their enterprise value and possibly create a capital gain someday. How is it that some private enterprises successfully transition through evolutions and revolutions in leadership, management, even ownership Some end up with terrific new majority owners, the entrepreneur-owner-managers moving gracefully into the next interesting and rewarding chapter of their lives, surrounded by friends, their positive legacy assured, their independence powered by the fortune they've just realized, while others, well, the outcomes can look a little more like a train wreck. Is it merely luck, or is it more than that? We think it's more than luck. For over 30 years, I've had the fun of meeting with thousands of EOMs and working with hundreds. I've seen that successfully striving for achievement and ultimately fulfillment leaves clues, breadcrumbs in the forest that we can follow. Deconstructing the behavior of high-performing EOMs lets us learn a lot about peak performance and optimal experience. So in this series of podcasts, I interview seasoned, successful entrepreneur owner-managers who are high performers, maybe even peak performers in their niche domains we look for patterns of connectedness across those domains to learn from. Today, I'm thrilled to share with you a private one-on-one interview with my friend, client, and guest, John Reddy, co-founder and co-CEO of Reddy Seafood, the largest lobster processor and marketer in North America. A pioneer in bringing protein, specifically lobster, to customers worldwide, John Reddy began lobster fishing off the coast of Maine as an adolescent and just never stopped. You'll hear him tell the story of how he and his brother Brendan evolved from winning a business plan competition in college, using the cash prize as the financial stake to begin Ready Seafood, to the strategy of moving into processing and marketing worldwide. About 40% of their product is sold outside of North America. At Bigelow, we worked with Ready Seafood in 2018 to architect its acquisition by a Vancouver-based public company called Premium Brands. The acquisition by Premium Brands gives Ready Seafood global distribution and marketing reach, as well as deep financial pockets for making acquisitions. As part of the acquisition structure, John and Brendan became very meaningful stockholders in Premium Brands. Oh, did I mention they're both still in their 30s? I had the fun of digging into some of John's early inspirations, motivations, successes, disappointments, and wisdom in this hour-long podcast. This podcast was recorded live on November 28th, 2018 at Bigelow. As always, these podcasts are unscripted and unedited. Are you ready to hear John Reddy? Sorry, couldn't resist. Here we go. I was thinking that um, you have a, you know, a persona and a reputation and a profile that is known to a lot of people, and they have formed their own opinions about what it is that you do or the kind of person that you are. But if you had to use a couple of nouns just to describe how you think about what you do professionally these days. And you keep it simple. If you were talking to your kids and you're going to use a couple of nouns, what would you say in terms of describing what you do these days? It's a really
1: good question, because our, our lives and our jobs certainly have changed dramatically over the past, I'm going to say, nine months. Um, we're doing a lot more managing, um, a lot more traveling, um, a lot more vetting out, finding teammates. Um, our role when we were first starting was more uh, doing, and now it's more planning and executing, is probably the best way to put it. And it's um, it's been a very fun transition, but at the same time challenging to get out of your old way, but still keeping that um, same theme of where you were but trying to apply that to your new i say new life even though life is same it's it's um it's been a really fun transition
0: it's a new chapter isn't it
1: completely new chapter
0: i'm just making this up as i'm looking at you and thinking about this in real time so i'm not sure if you'll agree with this or not but would you describe that the first part of your life up to age what mid-30s and the role that you played in the business and with your family was chapter one, and that you feel like you're in chapter two, yeah,
1: very much so. chapter two is is it's a it's remembering where you started, um, acknowledging the hardships, acknowledging the accomplishments, but at the same time realizing you're 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 not where you want to be and I say that not saying we're not happy where we are we're very happy but there's so much else out there um we wouldn't have realized it unless we went through this process it's hard to describe you can't just tell someone this you have to live it you have to go through the experience and realize what's next and i think that's what we're figuring out now there's a lot there's a lot
0: next yeah you have already unlocked a lot of potential that you may not have known was there and if I guess that would give us both optimism that there's even more potential for fun and learning and growing.
1: I think so. Um, it's all how you look at it. For, for us, it's, it's about creating and expanding your team. I know it sounds, sounds simple, but I'll, I'll mention this probably a few times today. It's all about team. It's all about people. And um, the, first, the first chapter was more about Brendan and myself and a lot of doing. And then it became a little more um, always team-oriented, but a, a smaller, less, less in-depth team. And now the only way we can get where we want to be is by expanding an all-star team. Great people in different areas, not necessarily in the industry we came from. In a lot of cases, the best new athletes, we I call them athletes. New hires are um, people from completely different industries with different points of view, um, apply to our industry and it's it's a really cool flavor to add to it
0: so when i asked you to describe a couple of nouns that t- tell what you do today you said that's hard and, and then you described some words that i my vocabulary would be uh, builder leader team builder evaluator you know manager if you think back to when you were a kid um, is that what you thought you were going to be when you grew up
1: I think when you're describing leader or leadership, um doer, yeah. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's what Brennan and I both um that's that's who we are. And again, it's not not saying that's it's just the way we grew up. We always wanted to be the best at whatever it was we were doing. And we always believed you need to lead by example, and it's the same way we've grown the business and I think are growing, um, growing the companies where we are going forward. You've got to be a leader.
0: So um, remind me, uh, were either one of your parents entrepreneurs?
1: Um, yeah, I think in a lot of ways both of them were. My mother is Tell an me about artist. That. Yeah. Um, what kind of artist? Again, she's, um, she does uh, oil, gouache, yeah. um, and she's got, she's got a great reputation, a great image. Um has a great network of people, but I think once you're looking at that, there's, even though it's it's you know a smaller boutique business, I guess, lifestyle business, it's definitely an entrepreneur. You know, you're creating something that's not there to an audience that doesn't perceive they need your product and you're charging a premium. Right. To me, that's an entrepreneur. Definitely. And it's the same my father had a, a fuel distribution business he worked on the working waterfront of Portland actually just retired and sold his business but same deal you know you're you're taking a business, you're creating a, a need, you're fulfilling that, and you're, you're finding more creative ways to do it each day, and that's what he was doing.
0: Yeah, not only that, but at that level of entrepreneurs that I'm imagining that they are, from what you described, it's also usually that you have to be chief cook and bottle washer. You do everything. You make the sale, then you deliver the sale, then you collect the money, then you go on to the next one, right? You
1: hit it on the head, Pete. That's exactly what it is. That was that was the lifestyle uh, we grew up watching our parents you know, you don't hire other people to do it. You did it, you know, if you figure it out on your own. And that's that's what they did.
0: So you mentioned when you were growing up. Um, when you were growing up, what kind of student were you? To be
1: candid with you, I wasn't a very good student at all. Tell me um, about that. I, I I certainly tried very hard in school, but uh, things didn't come to me. I struggled. Um, part of it was probably due to, uh, to a learning disability of, of not being up to speed or uh, uh, comprehending as, as quick as others. Um, but I think those struggles probably have helped me get to, to where we are now. Everything was hard. Nothing came easy.
0: Everything was hard all the way, when you think about schooling, all the way from, you know, grade K to, to through college, you felt like that there was a struggle. Once I,
1: once I hit college, it was a completely different story. It wasn't hard because I was doing, I was studying entrepreneurship and marketing. Um, I could relate it to what I really loved um, I still wasn't an A student, I was a B, B minus student. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did, I understood what was going on, I just couldn't, I couldn't, um, I did very poorly on written tests and so on. Once I was able to apply it to something that I was passionate about, um, it was. I did much better.
0: Yeah, I really relate to what you're saying. I think uh, somebody was asking me about my childhood and I grew up in my schooling, And I never thought about it in this way before, but when I tried to answer their question very truthfully and very candidly, I realized I had to say, actually, I was made to go to school, and I sat in school and had to learn things that other people wanted me to learn. And I really did not like that, and I didn't appreciate it at all. And I think I probably rebelled against it 100% of the time, but like you just described, uh, like when I was in high school, I realized, oh, I really liked shop class in the various, you know, like the small engines or the whatever, whatever. And then of course, at college or graduate school, I took off because I was able to focus on, on what I was really love. And actually, it makes me ask questions about our public education system, and are we doing it the right way now? You must wonder about that with your kids.
1: Absolutely, everyone learns differently you know you have to find what people are interested in and sometimes it's difficult too because when you're younger you don't necessarily know um, you, you know very clearly probably what you're not interested in but I think it takes a while to really find out your niche um, and I found probably discovered that in high school um, that we loved uh, we loved the uh, the marine environment the, the lobster industry we just didn't know at that point how our uh, lives or careers would mold around that. We always knew that somehow that was going to be part of our future. It didn't it was' until the end of college that we really understood that you know how we were going to fit into
0: this puzzle. Were there any hard moments growing up that you think back on that come immediately to mind that stand out that inspired you to become the kind of person you are now?
1: Every day, my father getting up at three o'clock in the morning in the dark, going to work and coming back in the dark.
0: really? Yeah. And what did you take from that?
1: If you wanted to get somewhere in the world, you had to put in the time. Nothing was for free. Um, and it wasn't really even about money. It was about pride. Yeah. It was about being part of that working crowd. And I always admired that. You know, I admired, that's what got us into lobstering. I wanted to be part of that crowd that got up before the sun came up, you know, out on the romantic sea you know, with, the, with the beautiful sunsets. That's what drove us from the beginning. It wasn't about money. It's right. still not about money. Right,
0: right. You know, it's funny, um, this morning, as you know, I live in the harbor, uh, and uh, at about a uh, quarter of five, I heard a lot of lobster boats headed out of the harbor. And this time of year, that's not necessarily every day. So that's my um, that's my weather forecast. It's like, if I hear these guys yep. running out of there at five, go, okay, that's good, it's gonna be flat and calm today. We'll take that.
1: That's right, beautiful morning today.
0: Yeah. John, were there particular people from your growing up years that you feel were particularly important to you, formative to you? Is there certain people that stand out?
1: Yes. Um, I think when you're looking at the camaraderie and the teamwork, it's – it's and again, it may not be a specific person, but it was always um, based around the hockey rinks. It was um, – it was the different teammates we had, and I think that's really what built the whole idea of where we are now, about our, our company's only as good as our team, team's everything. From a specific person, um, there was a gentleman when I was, um, geez, I think I was on my first co-op at Northeastern, and his name was Ted West, and he was in the real estate business, and um, he gave me a job, for my first co-op, running a lobster pound. And I learned more about commercial banking and distressed loans and stuff that I had no idea and probably still wouldn't know much about. But that was my 101 into not just a lobster business, but into the banking and everything else that goes with it.
0: So Ted West and the Lobster Pound were located where?
1: That that first that 1st co-op, I was 21 and I was in Beals Island, Maine. Oh, yeah. You talking oh, well. yeah. 10 miles from the Canadian border? Jonesport. Jonesport. Yeah. Beautiful area. Um... But again, distrust property that needed value, and yeah. someone needed to go up and run it to, to get it operational, and that was my job for six months, and I did it. And then they turned around and they sold it, and they got the return, and they moved to the next project in their portfolio. But that so was,
0: so you did you did they sell it coincident with your leaving to go back to school?
1: Um, knowing that they that they had a, a portfolio of other distressed loans, their their goal was to sell it to whenever there was enough value in it. I see. It just so happened that the University of Maine um, ended up buying it as a research institution, um, not far after my co-op. But I wouldn't say it it was dependent on um, me leaving. It was when, when there was enough value for someone to come in.
0: And expl- help me understand, why do you uh, mention that you learned a lot about commercial banking at that point?
1: Commercial banking was something that's so extremely important to us now, or at least when you're talking real estate. I mean, we, we have a tremendous amount of uh, much more real estate than we ever have, both on residential and commercial. But it was nothing that ever really interested me until I learned about it. Again, it's kind of one of those aha moments, right? You don't know it exists until you see it. And then you start digging around a little bit and um, you, you realize that it's it's uh, there's an art to it.
0: And did you learn about things like loan to value? I mean, were you looking at that? Were they, were they looking at that? when? when I had left?
1: no idea that there were even bad loan packages out there and who got these. And the fact that, that some of these loans that he got, he didn't get to choose. It was part of a bigger package that he was allocated. I see. Um, so it's not that you're, you're given this one little lobster pound. That was one, that was one item out of 20, 20 bad loans in a package. Right, right. It was just a different world, you know.
0: So when you were growing up and your dad was getting up at three in the morning, leaving in the dark, coming home in the dark, uh, and you began to have a view that um, your future revolved around the marine environment, you probably had a first boat. We did. What was the name of that first boat?
1: We named it Alewife Cove, and the reason we named it that was because that was the cove we grew up in Cape Elizabeth. And... um, the skiff i'm in now a little 17 foot carolina skiff uh i've named it a wife cove again uh, for my kids and and uh the the next generation but it was a 16 foot little wooden boat that are do
0: i remember did you share that with your brother
1: yeah yeah And and was there
0: a point where you had to get two boats
1: there certainly was Why was that i think uh I, i think most siblings could realize that um at some point the boat wasn't big enough for two two brothers looking to do two different things um it, it, we got along very well, but at some point, being a, a commercial fisherman, there's a trap limit of 800 traps, and if you wanted to fish your own traps, you needed your own vessel. So it was our way of expanding and having our own independence on the water. as part of our growth of of becoming who we are. So by junior
0: high school, we're talking about you know seventh. That'd be when you're, by the time you were a teenager.
1: Yeah, we both we both had uh, we were both fishing four or five hundred traps right. in our you know in our um, high school years and. We were on top of the world. Um, In hindsight, it was uh, a very exciting time. We were doing what we loved. Um, We were doing it um, with independence, and that's all we wanted to do. We didn't realize what else was out there. Right. And I still remember, and Brennan will tell you the story better than I will, but... I remember fighting with my parents saying, I don't want to go to college. I want to be a lobsterman, right. you know? And um, those fights drew on and our parents said, well, pay for your education, just go and get a backup. And reluctantly, I went and got a degree at Northeastern. Yeah. Two year, year and a half later, my brother went through the exact same thing. Sure. And he went to Stonehill College um, and got a, a, a degree in business as well. But that was, um, those days were um, so exciting and i compare that to the same excitement we're feeling now it's just the next chapter that's we're not hauling traps cool. we're we're looking for teammates and different businesses that are gonna um supplement our our uh our, our
0: road path john you're still hauling traps you're just fishing yeah. in different waters right? that's exactly it <laughs> literally <laughs> so, you know i have uh, i've got a lot of a lot of uh, neighbors and friends who are lobstermen and i have high regard for them but i would say that while many of them are very different from each other, the thing that is common is their desire for independence. Total independence. You ain't going to tell me when I'm leaving in the morning. You're not going to tell me where I'm putting my traps, and you're not going to tell me who I'm selling my lobsters to.
1: That's the definition of a lobster man. Independent. <laughs> Hardworking, but independent. Hey, um, what was lobster to your door? Lobster to your door was my first co-op um, my first co-op project at Northeastern, oh. I was, um, I think I was 19, and I would take the lobsters that we had harvested during the day, and in the afternoons, we put these flyers up and advertise in local papers, and I would deliver my catch to residential homes in Cape Elizabeth, a affluent location, to, um, to households. And Cut out the
0: middleman. You got right mean, to the That region. was our goal.
1: And we did. We did great. But we were selling two or three lobsters at a time and eating up most of our, our afternoons. And um, it was a valuable lesson of understanding what the consumer wanted. And that was my first look at there was more value in lobster than just selling, hey, here's my pound of lobster. I want X amount of pound. It was more about the experience. People really got a kick out of that. They, they were interested in communicating with the fishermen. Um, and they a lot of times they would pay more for it. So wow, even though really? we were just selling lobsters, you know, we were really trying to begin, that was the beginning of selling more of the experience.
0: And did you have, ever have any really super large orders that were tough to handle? We
1: had one, I remember I had one enormous order uh, months after starting that company. And uh, I got this voicemail on my cell phone. It was like for 500 lobsters, and I was so excited. I mean, it was everything I had caught that entire day and the day before, and it was, it was, it was fantastic. I was actually panicking a little bit. How am I going to come up with these? Later that afternoon, I realized it was my brother who made that phone call in <laughs> and pranked me. And uh, needless to say, there was no 500-pound order.
0: Did you get ever get them back for that?
1: Um. I'm sure I found my way, one way or another. There's still time. Yeah.
0: So um, you want to talk about uh, medical marijuana
1: growing in Maine? Medical marijuana, different industry. Um, emerging market, I'm afraid Maine Maine probably missed the boat on it.
0: How, how so? Well, uh,
1: from what I've read on it, medical marijuana, um, or, or recreational marijuana, rather, um, has been adopted here in, in Massachusetts. I believe there's some stores open now, but Maine is still in the medical stage. We were always interested in other business models um, and we found that there was a lot of comparisons to that industry and ours. Um, unfortunately it's not uh, federally legal, so it's hard to really blow that up um, and do it in the right way, so not an industry that we're, we're uh, involved in, but um, certainly many synergies.
0: So. When you graduated from college, and the Northeastern co-op program, most people who are listening are entrepreneurs and they would know that's one of the first and the most highly regarded co-op programs in the country. You graduated from that, and is that five years? Five-year program. Right. And so did that put you graduating at the sa- about the same time as your brother? Correct. Okay. Yep. Uh, So I was
1: a year and a half older than my brother. Yeah. Um, I graduated from uh, high school in, I think, 99 and him in 2000, but we both graduated from college in 2004 within
0: three weeks of each other. Okay. And so that's a good clarification. And so uh, when you both graduated from college, what happened then?
1: I Right before I graduated, I competed in the 60K Business Point competition, and it was essentially our business model of what Ready Seafood um, had become or was go- going to become um, weeks de- days, weeks, months after college. Brennan was still in college, um, still on campus, and um, I ended up winning the competition, and I signed a lease on Hobson's Pier in, in um, Commercial Street in Portland sight unseen and the day he got out of college we literally started ready seafood
0: so did um there was a cash prize
1: with winning the competition there was a cash prize but what was really encouraging to me more than the cash and I guess you can kind of kind of apply this to where you know we are now is it wasn't about the money right it was about the confidence it was the fact that Others believed our plan was really good, and it was that kind of that boost of getting out of your college comfort level to, yeah. hey, you're in the real world. Yeah. The truth of the matter is, Pete, it was hard. Business wasn't quite like uh, college. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it was a great, our first couple of years in, in, in business were great, but it was, uh, I'd be lying to you if I told you there were more success stories and failures. It just wasn't that way. It was, it was difficult.
0: Some good learnings.
1: It's great learning.
0: And so um, what I was getting at there was, and I take your point exactly, that by winning the, the competition, in effect, you get validation by outsiders of your plan and your, your thoughts. And you probably also got some people who gave you some constructive criticism, some thoughts about what Correct. you could do. Yeah. I'm assuming there was like a panel of judges or something. There was. Yeah. but. You also got a cash prize, right? Yeah. Did the cash prize go to stake you in the business?
1: It gave. To, it went to us in the business. and We had to, and that's what we used for our deposit for the first year.
0: Oh, yeah. So for that the was the beginning. That had.
1: also uh, ensured that we got an SBA guaranteed loan because we had cash to back it up. So we got. To, um, th- that was our first, uh,
0: our first loan we had as well, and that's how we started. So um, talk with me about those first couple of years. Did it feel a little bit like your dad leaving in the dark, coming home in the dark? It was dark all the time. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it was, it, we didn't know anything. We we knew how to work, um, but.
0: You knew how to haul traps.
1: We knew how to haul traps, but Ready Seafood wasn't about hauling traps anymore. It was about building a small team, um, finding ways to create more value with live lobsters and selling them to clients around the country at that point. And it was all foreign. We were the truck drivers. We were the guys, you know, offering bait in the morning. We were the guys grading lobsters in the afternoon. You know, we were the guys doing the banking in the office. We, we, you, do, you do whatever needs to be done. That
0: went on for two years, and during that time, you um, probably traveled uh, up and down down east to develop relationships with some of the other lobster buyers or the Correct. lobster men themselves. Yeah,
1: but- At, when we first started, we took two different roles. My role was more on the sourcing end, and my brother's role became more the selling end. Mm-hmm. So I would um, I would hop in the truck and I would drive up the coast and I'd knock on doors. And I would um, say, you know, would you sell me lobster? And 9 out of 10 would slam the door in your face and say, I don't know who you are, but no. And I ended up getting one really good account in Harpswell, which was one of my first accounts. And um, then another one in Phippsburg, which isn't too far from there. Mm-hmm. And that's how it all started. That was our first um, couple uh, direct buys with, with buying stations or wharfs. And would bring that product back and we'd grade it, put it in boxes and ship it out.
0: And uh, while you were doing that, your brother was developing um, sources on the selling side, presumably, around he the was. country.
1: He went to school with, uh, um, he had a lot of friends who lived down at Cape Cod in the summer, and that's what we were doing. We were trucking our lobsters down to Cape Cod, selling them to all the restaurants. And then we'd catch them. We'd go out, we'd actually go out, still lobstering, one day and catch, sell to the company, but not get paid. My brother would go out the next day and do the same thing: go out, catch, sell the company, not get paid. That was our working capital. Right. When one was out, one would do double duty in the shop, right. and that went on for a year and a half. And that's how we. That's the only way we made it. We never could have made it unless we had that, that cash coming in from the
0: lobstering. So, when was it that you dis, you came to the conclusion that uh, to optimize the business? These are my words. I appreciate that you not only wanted to sell live lobster, but that you wanted to get into the processing so that you could take advantage of the lobsters that weren't going to be suitable for live selling.
1: We realized that four years into business, I think it was four years, 2008, 2009, I can't remember, there was a a massive glut. Of lobster. The weather was really abnormally warm in the spring, too many lobsters shed, the quality was really poor, and uh, processors could not buy all of them, and the lobsters kept dying in our tank. And I remember clear as day, my brother and I sat on the loading dock um, looking at a tractor trailer that was filled to the brim, that literally we still had 40 or 50,000 pounds of lobster to go on it, and there wasn't any room. And um, we said, We gotta start a processing plant. We need to have another option other than relying on others, and that's what we did.
0: And so say, can you say a little more about that? So you, you started a lobster processing plant that will allow you to balance demand and supply, right. right? Yeah. And uh, were the customers for the processed product different than the customers for the live? Some were um, in a lot
1: of ways. There was some overlap, but for, uh, it, was, it was almost like starting all over again. Um, it was a completely different customer base usually there's a different buyer of a frozen or fresh um, ready-to-eat product compared to a live lobster. So that wasn't the difficult part. The difficult part was learning how do you build a processing plant, how do you make sure that you have a very safe food product, and how do you hire another 50 to 80 people that you're not used to hiring. It was the whole infrastructure. We, weren't, we came from the live lobster and not the processing. It was like starting business all over. However, we didn't make half the
0: mistakes because we already made them with a the live division. It's interesting though, right, because as you think about other companies, maybe even those with whom you compete, most of them have not gone into the processing side, and now that you look back on it, you can say, wow, it was really challenging to try to do that. It was like a different business. It's Exactly. Hmm. It's given us a tremendous advantage. It's
1: The way we look at it, it's like a valve. There's some days that the processing, when I say processing, I'm talking fresh-picked meat or frozen lobster tails, that market's really strong, and there's other days that the live market's strong. So if you're looking at one, you know, supplier product, our job is to find the greatest value out of that and push it through the right valve to to maintain that value. That's what we're doing.
0: Right. So probably people who listen to this podcast will get what I'm about to point out, which is so you and your brother went from being lobstermen to uh, becoming uh, businessmen and selling live lobster. And then you made another transition, which was to a much more sophisticated operation where you were going to take Different kinds of sources of supply and sell them to different kinds of customers. That's a whole nother chapter.
1: Completely, different segment. Everything about it was different. There was one common. There was one common common theme in this whole thing, and that's team. It was all about the people. It wasn't Brent and I. Once we started the processing plant, it was no longer Brent and I. It was our team was what was getting us to the next step. The first couple of years, it, it, it was the effort that my brother and I were putting in. But we soon realized that you only could get so far, there's only so many hours in the day. You couldn't work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We tried, you know, we tried for two years and um, we we got our feet wet and we understood. And I think we, we built a reputation for ourselves that we were hardworking, honest, transparent people who are hungry to make a difference in this industry, but it wasn't sustainable.
0: Right. So, um Together, you and Bigelow have recently completed a successful cap-gain transaction where Bigelow architected uh, a way for your company to be acquired by Premium Brands, which is a public company in Vancouver. When did you first start thinking about the thought that there might be an owner of the business or a partial owner of the business beyond you and your brother?
1: When I read your book, Pete. No joke. Tell me about that. You first, first of all, I'm, I don't read much. I read what I enjoy, but I don't read, um, you know, when I'm on vacation or, you know, when I'm really relaxed, I'll read. But for the most part, um, it's, not my, it's not my thing. We met with you, um, I believe it was maybe late summer and our financial advisor brought us in and again he'd been telling us or encouraging us for two years to come talk to you no 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 we're not interested you know not our our business isn't worth anything you know we're lobster guys from maine you know people aren't interested in this that was that was our mindset and i remember having arguments with brennan about this as we got closer to meeting with you and my brother's more the um I'm much more optimistic. My brother's very pessimistic. He's much more, um, you know, the glass is half empty type deal, which is a nice balance. And he was ready to, to literally, days before, cancel the whole thing. No, we don't have time. We've got to do this. We met with you. We both left with the understanding there was something else out there. We weren't sure if it was for us, but we were intrigued. And you gave me your book, and I took it home, and I read it the next day and the day after that weekend I read the entire book again this is with three kids running around my house distractions (laughs) up the yin yang phones ringing and I read the thing cover to cover Cool. and I remember there was one part in the book that really came to mind it was when one of the older owners and I can't remember the exact story was standing up or he was he he couldn't even go and, and confront his team when he sold the company he had someone else do it but he was so proud he ended up giving all of his teammates a tremendous amount of money and, um, I remember thinking to myself, geez, that'd be great if that was us someday, you know, we're having, if we could ever have a life changing event, how cool would it be if we could have it for the teammates who have been next to us? And from that point on, that's what my mind was set on. It wasn't about selling our company and trying to get a tremendous amount of money. It was how can we bring our people with us? And luckily enough through Bigelow, that's what we got to do.
0: Well, that's a great story. Uh, it's inspiring. You know, I remember after, during that first meeting and then in some subsequent meetings, John, um, uh, I thought maybe you would utilize the transaction as a way to maybe move a little out of the business and move on to some other businesses that are interesting to you. And I don't think you and I ever specifically talked about that. I was just observing you and, and getting that feeling. And yet, as we went through the transaction process together, and you had an opportunity to hear other investors from all over the world comment on what you guys have done in the business, and I think you probably felt some validation. Wow, other people thought this was really valuable, too. What happens is that it seems to me like you're more into the business more than ever. What happened?
1: Finding the right partner. I think that's a lot of it. Again, our We're still, I still say we're relatively young young in our our late 30s. We're not ready to retire, and we never had any objective. Our idea was never to get out or get out of some type of activity within the business arena. We always want to do something. Right. Finding the right partner allows you to grow in the way that you would grow your business just with a different... um, a different resource that you'd never have. And that's why we're so lucky. It's not necessarily, uh, money that you have, but it's the resources. It's the other companies that you're affiliated with. Um, it's all about the chemistry. And again, you're right. We saw some really great people, Mm -hmm. um, in many diverse areas between PE groups and a few strategics and Mm -hmm. investment banks. And all of them had different, um, different things to offer, but it comes down to who you're comfortable with. And that's, uh, that's another thing I've I, I got to give to you at Bigelow is you guys
0: did a great job. So you had um, a spectrum of alternatives to choose from. You had a number of different investors, as you just pointed out. Some of them were private equity. Some of them were strategic. Actually, there was one offer, if I remember, it was a minority investment offer that would have had you and your brother continue to own the business. And you picked the one that was the best fit for you. Thinking about that process just for a moment, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but thinking about that process together, um, were there some fears that you had going into that cap gain transaction phase? And if so, what were they?
1: The fear to us is that someday someone would tell us they've bought your business. I mean, it's not our business anymore. We're, we're, we're here, I mean, it's, it's what we put into it, but the, the fear is always that someone doesn't need you or doesn't want you, Um, especially something that you've built from scratch. Um, You want to be needed, but at the same time, it's still kind of your baby. And that's, I think, the synergies we had with with PB is they invest in people. And once we heard that and we met a couple of the other one, we flew to Vancouver um, on your suggestion, which was a great one, it was confirmed. Once you meet other business owners who went through it, they were very similar to us in different industries. They were passionate. They were hungry for growth. They weren't doing it for the money. They're doing because they loved it. And it was exactly why we wanted to continue on.
0: Yeah, so that's a, such an insightful point you just made. Um, maybe I just want to emphasize it for other people who are listening to this podcast that really um, Premium Brands is a great company, and they're led by also a great entrepreneur still, even though they're a public company. Uh, but it, what you said was really, really um, impactful to you in terms of learning was the ability to speak with other owner-managers who had also come together with premium brands. And really, you probably put them under a pretty bright light and yes. asked them some pretty tough questions.
1: You have to. You've got to be honest with them. got to ask those hard questions. And a lot of times we'd ask them after the fact when no one else from PB was around. You know, We'd call them and, and, and um, really get the true answer. And they were—they're were all very transparent. But we saw—I think six or seven different companies. Yeah. You know enough to really make the judgment that what they were, um, what their value proposition was, was was
0: indeed true. So again, thinking about the time of capturing the value in in um, Ready Seafoods, were there some things that you took as common sense, or things that you had to unlearn? Were there some some things that you held? Uh, to be true, which proved not to be true during that process?
1: Again, we're only three months into it, but so far everything's been right on. The people that we've, we've, we're working with are the same people that we met and, and um, learned about their business model or what their um, future f- goals were three or four months ago. It's the same. You know, I think that once you find the right people, and you're passionate about what you want to do, and you're transparent with them as well. I mean, mm-hmm. we very well could have, you know, said we wanted to stay and then walked, which probably would have dropped our valuation. That wasn't our objective. Right. You know, we want to take the hill, but we needed the right team to help us take the hill. And I think we've, we've, um, we've definitely. It's clear that we've made the right decision.
0: So let me just tack a little bit here and ask you uh, a couple of different kinds of questions. So. Um, you know in uh, many uh, traditional businesses and certainly what they teach in business schools and graduate business schools is that um, when organizations are at their best uh, people clearly understand and are committed to their specific role in the organization so i'm talking about role clarity here and yet you and your brother uh, I would argue during the time that I've known you, the couple of years that I've known you, you are co-founders and in effect co-CEOs. So uh, that, that would seem to lend itself to not quite as much role clarity. Um, it's obviously worked, but do you and your brother have a sense of role clarity? Do you think your team has a sense of role clarity about the two of you? And if so, how have you been able to pull that off?
1: It's another good, good observation. Because from the get-go, it's always been like this from the first day. When we first started the company, Brennan and, Brennan and myself never—I never said, "Hey, I'm doing buying; you're doing sales." It just—we figured out what needed to be done. We figured out what you know we enjoyed doing, and we did it. And I think it's the same now. As I focus more on um, a good example right now, we've just set up this new facility in uh, Nova Scotia, our first acquisition. I find myself going back up there every week or two weeks until the thing's set up, and I'll probably do this for the next six to eight months. It was never said or outlined, John, this is what you're doing, and Brendan, you're gonna do this, we just do it. And that's what's really unique. Um, we, we cover each other in different areas. Brendan does a really, really good job working with the teammates, uh, both in the facility, both ready seafood and the, li- and the um, processing working more in the um, in the gauntlet, I should say, and leading these people on a day-to-day basis, but at the same time, we both work together to try to figure out who is our management team to get us where we need to be. We're both always looking for the right athletes in the years to come. I'm always trying to figure out where should we be in two years from now? So I think once you have that and you have those different views, um, it creates clarity for not just myself and my brother, but also our team that we're both involved, but in different ways
0: being co-ceos has anything surprised you about that role do you recommend it to others
1: you better know your partner uh or in this case your, your brother or sibling very well because um a lot of times when you're covering for each other it's nothing that's communicated verbally. It's something that you need to know. I know that sounds strange, but you just know. You have that feeling inside when something else is needed in an area that you may not normally focus on.
0: Yeah, know? I think you call that trust.
1: Yeah, and I think trust is hard. You know, especially once you're you're you have a lot of changes going on, both at home and your, you know, your personal life, meaning kids, um, but also at work with your new family and your new uh, partners that you're bringing on. It's 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 difficult. But it's exciting. It's a great, great time.
0: So uh, again, traditional business theory or thought would say that um, people work best when they feel like they're like empowered owners of either the company or at the very least of their position. And they, and they understand clearly how their position and how their work is bringing value to the organization. Um, Before the transaction, it was clearly Ready Brothers Seafood and people had a certain feeling of the value they were bringing and you guys did too. You actually were the owners of the business. Now that's changed. Does it feel different to you now working with premium brands and can you postulate? Does he think it feels different for your team?
1: I'm I'm hoping the answer is no. For our team, I know it's no for, for myself. The only thing that's different is I feel like I'm in my mid-20s, and I'm starting all over again with all the knowledge that we started with.
0: People are hungrier than we ever have been. Oh, and I like that. Let me just make sure I understand that. So by being in your 20s, you don't, you're in the 20s with the excitement and the energy, but you don't have to make the same mistakes over again that you, you made got in your it. 20s. Oh. i made the mistakes, bigger
1: resources, yeah. better people, understanding how important people are in team. Now our job is to find those other teammates in other industries or other companies and acquire them or bring them on to strengthen our mothership and it's really exciting.
0: So as you guys have evolved your roles, uh, both before the transaction and now after the transaction, um, I'm imagining it's pretty easy to be able to get tipped over with requests from people whether it's from Vancouver or Halifax or Woods Harbor or somewhere in between. And you are, uh, by nature, uh, a very friendly, um, accommodating guy. Um, Has it been difficult for you to learn how to say no to all of the people who want more of your time and attention?
1: No. We're still running it the same way. You can't change who you are. You can bring other people in who specialize in different areas that may not be the greatest value of your time. I still return all the voice messages I get, regardless if it's a small fisherman in a, in a port that I know I'm not going to buy from, you know, or if it's an investment bank trying to manage my money. You return the phone calls. You do what you you Treat people the way you want to be treated. Doesn't mean that you have to deal with all these people for the long run, but give them courtesy of, of calling them back. Definitely. It's the right thing to do. Yeah,
0: definitely. I, um like you, I return every phone call, every email, and um, I'm in a professional service business, and I grew up that way. It never occurred to me to be otherwise. But I do get um, stunned when I don't get treated that way by others, and I think, why do they think that's okay? It's, it's
1: <laughs> the way I look at it, it. It creates the the culture and identity of who you are, and it's really easy when um, others don't have that same belief. It, it separates you very quickly. And I find that's, um, that happens more commonly than not. You know, you get a bad reputation. Reputation's everything.
0: So if you think for a moment about John, the, uh, the successful entrepreneur, and if we um, went to some of your people who know you the best, whether it's some of your teammates or whether it's your uh, friends, and if you could be as coldly objective about yourself as possible, what would you say? Your what would your closest friends say is your unique ability?
1: They would probably say that I'm extremely hardworking, independent, um, very kind, and willing to help others. Um, they'd say that I'm driven. I think both Brendan and myself were both goal driven. We like knowing that we have a target. Growing the business from the get-go, we didn't really have a target. We just wanted to be better. But now, with the resources and the team that we have, we have a pretty clear vision where we want to be. And having that vision and having those goals,
0: it's extremely exciting. And so can you share with me, what, what is the vision of where you want to be? What are you trying to become?
1: We want to be one of the leading North American Seafood companies specializing in um, a diverse array of seafood items, not just live lobster, not just lobster meat, other products that may supplement the same customer base that we're already servicing. um, From a new distribution hub with um, state of the art logistics. Essentially, that's what we are. We're a logistics company moving widgets from point A to point B really efficiently in the world market. We think we can do it just as well with other items to the same customers to supplement them
0: do you ever see adding um, items in addition to seafood
1: not right now i mean certainly there's a lot of shiny objects out there i think we're still disciplined knowing where we are now and where we need to get to over the next five years Um, so could i see other items under the ready ready brand sure but i think in the short run it's going to be seafood um, oriented
0: See, I asked you about um, because you are a kind and an affable person and you say yes to things a lot, and because you're goal-directed, you obviously have the goals that you're saying to yourself, yes, yes, yes to, I'm going to get to that. And I asked you about what do you get good about saying no to, and you said not really. But I disagree with you because I think that really to be focused on the way you are, and I just asked you a trick question about what about other than seafood, and you immediately said no because I want to be focused on on what we're doing. I think that's just an, an enormous strength to yeah. be able to feel that way and, and act that way.
1: We try. Again, at the end of the day, you got to be great at what you do. And if, it put, if you put too much on your plate, um, you always risk uh, being average.
0: So speaking of being great at what you do, let's turn that upside down. Um, do you have any kryptonite? Do you have uh, an ultimate weakness, either in terms of like an activity or a relationships? Or, or, I don't mean a specific a kind of relationship or... Uh, uh, a place? Do you have any kryptonite? I, I will admit, the,
1: the one weakness I have right now still, I love getting out in the boat lobstering. Um, and I <laughs> say this laughing, uh, but when I get out of this today, Pete, I'm going out in the boat. Yeah, I'm right. going to take my 13-year-old uh, and yeah. we're going to go hit the high sea, and we're going to haul our 15 traps.
0: Great.
1: Is it the best use of my time? Probably not, but I enjoy it. It's kind of my relief, my escape. Um, yeah, so,
0: so you're a giver, and you are a hard worker and a thinker, and you're, are you saying that uh, if you don't get out there, bad things could happen? It's my way to
1: unwind. So I think if I don't keep that, you need, I, it's important to keep that balance. Everyone has to have their, um, their, their area however they relieve stress. Some people travel, some people read. I like getting on the boat. Don't get me wrong. I love traveling too. It's a little more difficult with three kids, um, but um, you know, going out for for an hour after work or you know once a week, it's 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 what I need.
0: Remind me, John. How old are your kids?
1: I have a little boy who's eighteen months. Uh, my little girl is just turning five next week, and I have a thirteen-year-old boy as well. So,
0: a lot going on there. But lot going
1: on. Yeah. Exciting though. Exciting times. Yeah.
0: So, you and I were just talking about goals and destinations and being um, inspired by having goals, being motivated by having goals. And and this podcast, we hear uh, from people who are really successful entrepreneurs. They all have very much goal-driven, right? And the people who are listening to this podcast are very curious about that, too. But we also think a lot about the behaviors that allow you to get to the goals or take it even one step further back the habits that create the behaviors what would you say are your best habits
1: habits yeah habits. We, we just uh a bad habit is we can't put it to we can't turn it off that's one bad habit um and I say that <laughs> again kind of jokingly but when we get involved with something, we're almost obsessed and I think my brother and I are both the same way. We want to be great at it. Yeah. Um, so we'll just, we just keep we'll keep doing and doing and doing until until we get where we want. We'll outwork people. Sometimes probably it'd be simpler to spend a little less time per week on a project or discipline yourself, not to get burnt out or whatever it is. and I'm sure other entrepreneurs have the same problem. But when we want something, we'll do. We'll spend whatever resources needed to make sure that we execute.
0: So, so uh, that that's a bad habit, good habit, right? So, what you're saying is, uh, some people who are looking at it might say, "Wow, you're you're persistent and tenacious to the point of being, if I could use this word, stubborn." Correct. Uh, but you know, our friend Angela Duckworth at Penn would say that's the definition of grit. It's passion and persistence for long-term goals. But uh, what are some other habits? For example, uh, are you a guy who uh, frequently works out? Do you have other habits that you do physically or are there other habits that you do uh, family-wise that have been helpful to you?
1: One of the habits I have more within the work arena is it's important that I see each facility that we have every single morning. Wow. And another kind of uh, good, bad habit is my day to go in is always Sunday morning when no one's there. I like making sure that everything's ready for the week ahead. Again, I'm not the guy who does the operations, but it's really important for me, and it's been something I've done probably since we first started. Is I need to make sure when no one else is there that everything's ready to go for the next day. So it's um, it, it's that's probably my most enjoyable day. And and lately, I've been taking my daughter, and you know, we'll spend two hours in the morning. We'll hit each place. We'll stop at uh, Starbucks and get our you know, our coffee and her her little, you know, chocolate milk, and we'll head home.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting you say that, John, because I have found through my life that entrepreneurs have a uh, unusual relationship with Sunday. So Sunday, for many people, I suspect is, you know, just a weekend day, and they do whatever. For many uh, successful entrepreneurs, I've found that um, if I'm setting up my week ahead on Sunday afternoon, I'm frequently looking at my planner and I'm thinking about what I'm doing. And I frequently would get on the phone and talk to some of my friends or clients who are entrepreneurs, thinking about the work we're going to do together. And sometimes people think like, "Wow, you're sort of impinging on their Sunday." But I find invariably when I talk to entrepreneurs on a Sunday afternoon, they're like, "Yeah, I'm so glad you called. I've been thinking <laughs> about blah, 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 blah. right." So, it's just getting a head start. Yeah,
1: I'm a planner. I mean, that's I, I, I need to make sure that, you know, when we always want that one-up on who we're competing against, and half the time we're on the phone on that Sunday, we know our competition isn't. Do you, uh, do you listen to podcasts? Um, not, not as much as my brother does, but occasionally.
0: Yeah. And um, you mentioned that you don't find that reading for recreation is that relaxing. I do
1: if I'm in a very relaxed setting. It's very distracting um, in the normal setting. So again, when I'm on vacation, yeah, love it. Truth of the matter is we don't vacation that much. Um, not because we can't, but three long weekends is kind of our thing. Yeah. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, back Monday, I've missed nothing. Yeah. If I leave for a week, it takes me two weeks to catch up. Yeah. So um, when my wife and I first got married, I used to read much more than I do now. But again, add the distraction of the three kids running around, it's a little more difficult.
0: Yeah, you know, um, I guess for different reasons in my case, but um, all during my career, I have done both. So sometimes I'm, I take a long weekend and other times I've been gone for as, from my business for as long as a month at a time. And uh, the more I go on, the more I realize that what you just said. So for example, I went on a short trip out of the country. And I think I left on a Thursday night. So I flew overnight and arrived Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, went back home. And I had felt, you know, that's a long enough time where I really, really feel like I was away. Look, I didn't really get into the culture that I was into. It was a different country. But it was a great break where you really felt you were in a way. And I, I see the benefit of having um, more frequent but shorter trips.
1: That's what we do. That's what's perfect for my lifestyle. Um, and I believe my brother's the same way too. It's, it's enough of an escape, but you're close enough um, you know, that you haven't missed too much.
0: So many people, John, now would listen to this podcast and they think, oh my God, look at this guy. He was a lobsterman he went to Northeastern Co-op. He came out and started this business. They just had this huge capital gain transaction. Now he's still running the business and he's building the business uh, with his team, to be an even more interesting business with some other people's resources. Um, let's say you you were going to give a recommendation to some young, driven, about-to-be-college graduates who want to be an entrepreneur. Do you have any top-of-mind um, recommendations? Follow your passion. What does that mean?
1: It means don't get distracted by what you think is going to make you the most money. Do what you love. If you're looking to make more money, you have to be happy. our our motive was never to have a capital gain it was never become rich we wanted a good healthy lifestyle for ourselves in a safe place to bring up our kids and our family we just found something that we were really really enjoyed and we found that we've become pretty good at and um, we've used that competitive skill I guess you have uh, back from the hockey days and we've created an all-star team and we're going to continue we're doing what we love to do and we still do it every day
0: and what would you say is, uh, are among the worst recommendations you hear given to young potential entrepreneurs?
1: I think sometimes people are pressured to find a career um, or pushed into something because it's something that a relative had done before or that um, they thought it would make them more money or not the right answer. Don't do that. You've got to figure out what you want to do. You know, if I wasn't in business, I'll be honest with you, Pete, I'd be, I'd be a teacher. Um, I love helping. I love trying to teach. And I think that's kind of both, you know, Brendan and myself's role right now is we, we've we become teachers just for a much larger team um, than we had when we first started. Um, we're trying to teach people to do what we used to do and bring them up. We love having organic growth in our company. Love it. We love bringing people from nothing up to an area that would exceed what they ever believed they could do. It's essentially what we just did. We came from an area on the water in Portland, Maine, to a capital game far larger um, than we ever believed we ever could have obtained. Um, And it's a magical experience. And again, I'm going to repeat, it's not about the money. It's about... um, it's about the confidence that your business is worth something and there's value. in something you've done for the fi- past 15 years isn't valued by just one group, but by 26 in our case that we had for, for offers, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, you know? it's
0: great validation, right? It's transformational, or it can be. So I know you like this question because you and I have chatted about this question before. So this is my question about big magic. Let's pretend we go to sleep tonight. And tomorrow, magically, we wake up, and it's November 30th, 2028, 10 years from today. And we get together, and you say, Pete, remember that day we did that uh, Positive Enterprise Value podcast? I say, yeah. He said, that was 10 years ago, and I just want to let you know that things have gone since then have been great, professionally just great, couldn't have been better. Personally, they've gone great. What's happened?
1: I'll tell you the one thing at the end of the day that is important for you here that will happen. We had life-changing events for those teammates that helped us over the past 10 years. That's it. Awesome. It's the number one thing.
0: So life-changing events from this day forward, in and the, in the, looking Correct. over your shoulder in 10 years. We hit our goals. Great. So John, in this group of listeners, you know, this is a big group of listeners. Um, they're both um, entrepreneur, owner-managers, some of them are uh, very high-performing businesses, and they're very mature businesses. Others are probably students or would like to become entrepreneurs. Um, but in this group, high performance, you know, what I'll call superior achievement, whatever they're working on, is quite common, right? Not all of these people would describe themselves as being fulfilled or content. Would you describe yourself as content?
1: No, absolutely not. That's what I mean. We haven't hit our goals. Until I have, till our, our teammates have had that event, the same feeling that we did, we're not, we're not happy. And probably at that point, our team's going to be three times the size, and we're going to do it all over again.
0: So, so contentment isn't a place that you are trying to get towards. What you're saying is you're, you're continuously striving.
1: Yeah. We're hungry. We like seeing what's next, what's the next chapter. We're in chapter two right now. I hope chapter two goes well, I think it will. you know. I think it will too. But um, something in the back of my mind says there'll be a chapter three, not sure what it is. But uh, something tells me that's probably what will happen next.
0: Okay, last question. Um, there are a lot of people around you who um, probably work with you or live with you, feel like they know you pretty well. Is there one misconception that you would say that people around you have that you feel is a misunderstanding?
1: I think, I don't know if I want to call it a misunderstanding, but I think this is difficult. Um, sometimes when people see that you've sold your business or you've had a capital gain, um, they immediately think that, you um, you're extremely wealthy or that your lifestyle's changed or that you treat people differently. It's not the case at all. And we've seen it a little bit and I, I fear that we'll see more of it. We want to be treated the same way that we were by the same friends and the same people that we ever were. We haven't changed. So I think that's one of the more difficult um, realities is trying to still keep that, that lifestyle that you've had kind of that low key. That's who we are simple people driving pickup trucks um, dressing like normal maine people that's who we want to be known for um, and it's it's difficult sometimes realizing that you, you are judged and we will continue being judged um, in the years ahead
0: Well, you keep driving those pickup trucks, and maybe you won't have those misconceptions. That's exactly
1: why I'm not getting rid of my pickup (laughs) truck.
0: (laughs) I I prefer a suburban, as you know. John, I want to thank you so much for your creativity and your leadership. And I think that uh, you've heard me say before, I think you're a very unusual entrepreneur in my experience because there are many entrepreneurs who are thinkers, And there are, on the other hand, many who are doers. There are very, very few who are critical thinkers and doers like you are. And so I really appreciate that. And I want you to know that if part of your goal uh, in life is to be a teacher, and maybe that's something you'll end up doing in Chapter 3, who knows, then you've just accomplished that because I think you probably have a really big audience, bigger than your team. You're a teacher for your team, but bigger than your team here today at Positive Enterprise Value. So good work on that.
1: Very, very appreciative of work with you, Pete. Bigelow's great, and uh, I can't tell you how appreciative both uh, myself and my, my brother are for that experience. It's, uh, it's life-changing, and um, we'll treasure it forever.
0: Thank you, John. I really hope you enjoyed that uh, interview with John Reddy. He was terrific, wasn't he? And I'm really excited to tell you that my next podcast interview next month will be with Merrill Levin, she is the founder and the leader of Mill Falls Charter School, which was the first public charter school to use the Montessori method in the state of New Hampshire. She began it uh, almost 10 years ago in Manchester, New Hampshire. They've now grown to encompass uh, six grades. And Merrill tells us a little bit about uh, getting started in a school environment, uh, the challenges she faced in the regulatory setting, the challenges she faced in fundraising, and uh, what she sees as the future uh, outcome for Mill Falls Charter School. I hope you'll join me uh, when we do that podcast next month.